I don't see Nancy here. Okay. So anyway, I just wanted y'all to know who your precinct chair is, and if you have any questions from them, uh, feel free to talk to them after the program. So. And thank them all for their service. It's so much fun. Yes. Linda provided me. Thank you for your service. Oh, and while I'm at it, uh, when you signed in precinct chairs, you picked up your ballot application for next year's. I encourage you all to have that signed and notarized after or as of no sooner than September 12th is when the ballot application uh, period starts for the precinct chairs. So if you will, take care of that after September 12th and get it back to me. I would appreciate that. It starts September 12th for, and then closes December the 11th. And please silence your phones or put them on airplane mode or however that works. Okay, since we went through the roll call for the precinct chairs, I believe we do have a quorum, right, Linda? Yes. Okay, great. All right, so our next uh, item of business is approval of the minutes from the June 12th, 2023 Executive Committee meeting. Um, can I get a motion to accept those? So moved. Joe, and a second? Second. Okay, it was a tie, Kimberly and Zach. All right, all precinct chairs in favor, say aye. 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 Any opposed, say nay. Good deal. Okay, uh, second approval of minutes from the June 21st Executive Committee meeting. And that's the meeting where Mr. Joe Jameson was um, elected to be precinct chair for LaGrange East and Reutersville. So can I get a motion to accept those minutes? Move. David Bart. Second? Second. William? All right, all in favor? Aye. Any opposed? Good. Moving on. Oh, I failed to mention that Kimberly Rutledge, in addition to being precinct chair for Warden Winchester, is also our treasurer for the party. Yes, you are up. I am Kimberly Rutledge. Okay, we started our balance of cash at the end of our last meeting was $5,609. We had uh, $525 in contributions. We disperse meeting expenses, $624. We pay for our PO box. We had our promotion where we paid half of the booths at the fair. We share that with FCRW, the Republican Women Group here in LaGrange. And then we paid website expenses of 469. Our total disbursements were 1380, and that left us with a balance of cash 4,755. Our primary account, since there's no elections going on right now, had no deposits, no disbursements. It remains $100. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am.
Okay, let's see. Next on my agenda, uh, y'all already met our new precinct chair for the Grange East, Joe Jameson. Uh, just making you aware, I think I mentioned that we have a vacancy um, for precinct chairs in Cistern, Muldoon area, also the Dubina, Amundsville, Swiss Alp area. So again, if you're from those areas and would like to step up to be a precinct chair, come see me after the meeting. Thank you. Um, okay, so we are going to jump right in to our speakers. Without further ado, is oh, Nancy's here. Hey, stand up, Nancy. <laughs> Nancy Appleby is your precinct chair for Holman and uh, Mullins Prairie. So, just so you know that. Oh, and Mr. Stan Kitzman just walked in too. Your current representative for District 85 House Rep. Okay, is Brandon here? Okay, there she is. All right, come on down, Brandon. Now keep in mind I was making roughly about $5 an hour, 
which was all I needed to get a full tank of gas. <laughs> Not in Biden's America, but we'll talk about that. So I remember getting my first paycheck, and I got my pay stub, and I was very confused. Because I took it home to my mama and I said, who is FICA and why are they taking my money and what are they spending it on? And that was the beginning, truly, of understanding how government was taking my money that I had worked for and I was already budgeting, right? $5 an hour, I work 10 hours a week, okay, that is a tank of gas and maybe I can get my cheerleading uniform. So for me, I was very confused about all of a sudden this, this idea of government taking my money where were they spending it? So, of course, growing up in that rural community, we, we shared those same Christian values. I grew up in a family where faith was the cornerstone. It's what got us through a lot of hard times. So you start combining these principles of limited government, taxation being a burden on the people, Christian values. And I found myself really interested in school of studying government and politics, which led me to be a first-generation graduate from the University of South Carolina, where I worked for the governor at the time, uh, Mark Sanford. No chuckles? Are you guys Republicans? Okay. Usually I get a couple of little smiles, a couple of questions about that one. But I, I, did, I did have the opportunity to work for the governor during college. That led me, as mentioned, up to Washington, D.C., where I had the extreme privilege of working for U.S. Senator Jim DeMint. Now, I hope you know that Senator DeMint was voted the most conservative member of the United States Senate. During my time with DeMint, he started what was called the Senate Conservatives Fund, which was a PAC that was dedicated to electing conservative Republicans, including folks like Mike Lee, Pat Toomey, Rand Paul, and our own U.S. Senator Ted Cruz. It was during my time in Jim DeMint's office where I would say that flame of conservatism grew into a bonfire. I was seeing firsthand the vision of our founders. I was working in the halls of the Capitol. I learned about the very important topic of term limits, which we should talk about. And I learned how important it is for, for constituents, for Americans to show up and hold their elected members accountable. So I was really blessed to have that opportunity. It was around this time that I met a young man from Fayette County. And we shared a lot of common ideas on the ways that we thought government should function, what they should and shouldn't do, what the responsibility of the individual is, how important our family and our faith and our culture are. And I'm excited to say that he convinced me to not only marry him, but move home to Texas. And so in the back is my husband, Brendan Steinhauser. <laughs> He's the one that's guilty of getting me here to Texas, but he didn't have to do much convincing because I specifically remember the first time I came home to Texas to meet his family. And I have to tell you, I was pretty smitten, but when I met the Steinhausers and I met my, what I already knew to be my future family, because when you know, you know, and I was so excited to see that our values were shared in the community that he grew up in. I was so excited to think about a future of building a family with a, with, a, with a broader family and in a community where our values were not only going to be shared, but they were going to be celebrated. And so 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, we moved home from Washington, D.C., and decided to, I started a company at that time because I wanted to really get in the fight on educational freedom, which if you, if you know anything about where we are in our country in terms of education, this is the fight worth having. And I can proudly say that over the last 12 years, 
I've been on the front lines of fighting for educational freedom, of getting government out of the way, of putting power back into the hands of the parents. And so I decided that what I really wanted to do in Texas was be on the front lines of that fight. So I started a public relations company specifically designed to be a voice in the school choice movement here in Texas. Around that same time, um, we were very blessed to start a family. And so as mentioned in my bio, I am the proud mother of four. I have a seven-year-old, Bonnie. I have five-year-old twins, Ella and Rose. And then I have a sweet baby boy who's almost two, and his name is Otto Steinhauser. And so they're in Flatonia today hanging out with their grandparents. But I have to tell you, 10 or 12 years ago, when I first started working on school choice, it really came from that same conservative philosophy of, like, the government does not know best. At the time, I wasn't yet a mother. And so it was a real come-to-Jesus moment when we started having our own children, and there was this idea that they get to a certain age, and I'm just going to hand them over five days a week. I'm just not going to see them, and I don't really get to ask questions about who's teaching them or what they're learning in the classroom. And I think that this issue of educational freedom is really tough for a lot of folks. Pre-COVID, it was tough to understand why it mattered so much, but COVID kind of released the truth and pulled back the curtain, and all of a sudden you have parents asking, what is my child learning? Why is my child so anxious all the time? I don't really know my child. What is going on with my child's teacher? And so I would say the movement for educational freedom really grew, and I've been so blessed and privileged to be a part of that. My role in that movement has really afforded me the opportunity to do quite a bit of media, including national media. So last spring, there was a real movement in in the country and right here in Texas called the Parental Bill of Rights. Anybody was following this? There was this movement where, you know, our our members, our conservative members, were putting out information saying parents have these fundamental God-given rights. They have the right to ask questions about their child's education. They have the right to know what curriculum their children are learning. They have the right to not be called domestic terrorists for asking these very important questions. So I, I ended up doing a ton of media and events on this, which I think sparked some interest. And I got a phone call about running for Republican National Committee woman. Now, as a mother of four and a small business owner, and I have all kind of other community responsibilities, my first response was just to laugh. Because, of course, when you have a very full plate, you know, what do you do? You ask a busy woman to do something else, and what does she usually say? Sure. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Why not? So I take that idea to my husband. He's like, are you crazy? But he also knew that when you get your mind set on something, you're going to likely do it. So I thought about it a lot. I prayed about it a lot. And my, my instinct was to call five or six people and ask them what they thought. Do you think I should do this? Do you think I would be a good candidate? And it was very much coming from a place of, why not? We see this movement in our country where our parents are needing to stand up and fight back. We see an opportunity to push back on the radical progressive left in the way that they are shoving their so-called values. I say it's a lack of values in our face at every single turn, whether it is our K-12 indoctrination camps that we have, or it is higher education, or it is Hollywood. Let's not talk about corporate America. I can't even take my kids in Target anymore. And so I felt this, this 
bubbling feeling of like, we have to fight back. We cannot be silent. And every single person I talked to said, I think you do a good job. You're kind of scary. Yeah. Like you, you should really think about doing this. And, and so I did and I decided, okay, you know, I think I do have a voice that needs to be heard on behalf of the moms, on behalf of my generation to say, we are showing up and we are not backing down. We are not gonna let Joe Biden's America and the radical progressive left change America in a way that is not even recognizable to my children and my grandchildren because our grandparents and our ancestors have worked so hard to instill the values of faith and family and community and fighting for liberty. We know and I believe that we are just one generation from extinction of our values if we do not fight. And so I kept coming back to the words, if not now, when? If not me, whom? And I also kept hearing, for such a time as this. Because I believe that we have to fight. And so I am proudly running for Republican National Committee woman because I believe that we have to have young mothers step up. I believe that Texas has the opportunity to send one woman and one man to the national Republican level and that we must send our best. And I'm not saying that's me, but I'm saying it should be someone who represents those values and is unafraid to say that being a Republican means something. It's not just an R by your name. And so if you're gonna run on a platform as a Republican, you have to stand for conservative values and principles. And if you don't, we will gladly hold you accountable. So I hope that... I hope that um, I can get to know each of you. I already have many recognizable faces in the crowd, but it truly is my honor to join you this morning, share a little bit about my background, uh, the passion that I have for fighting for these ideas that I think we all share and hold dear, and I certainly would love your support along the way. So thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Just so you are aware, I know some of you are, but in order to vote for Raymond, you have to attend the state convention as a delegate from Fayette County. In order to be a delegate from Fayette County, you have to attend the county convention. In order to attend the county convention, you have to attend your precinct convention. Okay? So, having said that, I will be sure that you're all aware when our precinct and county conventions are going to happen. Uh, it'll be sometime in toward the end of March of next year. And then our uh, state convention is going to be in July, June? Uh, it's late May. Late May? Yes, last weekend of May. Oh, thank you. Okay, and it's going to be in San Antonio, yes, right? So, well, at least San Antonio is a fun town. So, there you go. Do you want me to do questions? Okay, does anybody have any questions for Brandon? Oh, sure. Okay. Yes, sir. How many votes does it normally take to elect somebody? I mean, if we all show up, are you elected? I mean, what, how, how big of a deal is this? Yeah, thank you so much for the question. So, it's a very complicated process. So, this vote is done in Congressional Caucus. So if you've been to state convention before, you know you often will go caucus uh, with either your CD or your senatorial district. So this vote is done in caucus with your CD. Um, and my goal is to get 20 plus congressional districts so that it doesn't have to go to a floor vote. 
Um, so there's usually about 5,000 delegates, 5,000 alternates. You can start to do the math. There's obviously you have congressional districts that are much more populous. Um, so for, for me, my goal is to just get as many people as possible to show up. Uh, it's an important process to begin with, and this is just one of many votes that are taken during the convention process. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Would you support if she ran again for uh, RNC Chair uh, Harmeet Dillon? I would support Harmeet, and I followed that race once I decided to do this campaign for RNC committee woman. To be quite honest, uh, I wasn't very familiar with the RNC, the structures, the procedures, the rules. But as I jumped in, that was one of the very first questions I got, so I decided to educate myself on it. There was a race for national committee woman between Ronna McDaniel, who was re-elected as the incumbent, and Harvey Dillon, who was the challenger. Um, I would have supported Harvey. And I think that you know a lot of people have asked me, why are you challenging the incumbent? Because competition makes everybody better. And whether or not it applies to elections or the free market, I think we can all agree that it's important to ask tough questions and it's important to hold people accountable and it's always healthy to have different people with different perspectives. So in that case, uh, I would have supported Harmeet and I have a tendency to kind of support the underdog anyway. So, yes. Uh, yes, ma'am. So what, in your opinion, needs to be done differently that's currently being done? What is, is there something, what, how do you Sure. Yes. Well, I think a couple of things. I do, and I have heard from my experience so far over the last few months, that um, oftentimes Texas to the RNC just kind of shows up. We aren't as involved in kind of fighting for those conservative principles. Um, for me, I have never been a country club Republican. I've been a grassroots activist since the early days. I have helped to planned the first Tea Party rally in Columbia, South Carolina in 2009. Uh, for me, I believe that we have to get back to those core fundamental principles of listening to the grassroots, empowering the grassroots, and not making it about those at the top, but instead focusing on the people who are doing the work every single day that are seeing the impact of Joe Biden's economics and making sure that those voices are heard in the process. I think right now it's much too familiar to a country club Republican establishment and for me, I'd like to shake that up a little bit. Okay, let's take one more question yes. from Arnold. Can you tell us something about the financial requirements for a campaign for RNC? Yes, you know, this is one of those campaigns that's really unique because while it is a statewide campaign, it's really just focused on those most active Republicans who are going to make their way to San Antonio. So the financial requirements are really what you put into it, honestly. Um, I would say, you know, there is an opportunity to travel. I get a lot of speaking invitations. I can't do them all. I'm a mother of four. So there's a cost of time and money that comes with trying to get around the state. I think you know one of the things I'm trying to do is representing my generation is doing a digital campaign, connecting with folks online, being available to do Zoom calls and Facebook Lives and making sure that we're bringing in that technology. Now, if I were to win, there is a financial responsibility that comes with attending those quarterly meetings at the RNC. And that's certainly something that was a part of that initial discussion with my husband. Hey, do we have the time and capacity to do this? And obviously, we made the decision that we would be willing to make that investment if I'm successful. Are you accepting financial contributions? I am, and I appreciate that offer. Um, so thank you for the question, and uh, I appreciate your interest in, in supporting me. Uh, yeah. I speak for a lot of people here. I urge these other people to support you. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Rick. Texas and they're moving to our rural counties. Uh, 
we're still growing cotton, corn, and cattle in, in most of the district. But uh, in Waller County and Fort Bend County, you see uh, that changing very, very rapidly. And uh, yeah, I think that um, the experience I've had as a county commissioner and then running the Berkshire County Drainage District uh, helps give me a little perspective on how that happens and at least make sure that if we're going to grow, that that's done in as, in as positive a manner as possible and something that we can come back 50 years later and say, you know, we still wish it was the way it used to be, but uh, at least we try to do it right when we had the opportunity to influence that. I'm going to give you a short report on the, the legislature because that usually takes most of an hour and uh, I only have just a, a few minutes. But overall, I think we had a pretty successful run in the 88 Texas legislature. Uh, you heard a lot of the controversy. You heard uh, a lot of publicity coming out of different groups and their emails and everything. But in the end, you've got Republican officials who are trying to do the things that we ask is, is Republicans. And uh, on the House side, uh, in particular, there's 85 of us, there was 86. We had to remove one of them for some pretty egregious ethics violations. Um, but in the end, they, uh, they believe the same things we do. I know you get told that's not true. Uh, and some people will say, well, you just went up there and drank the Kool-Aid. No, I, I know these people, one-on-one -on -one and, and, and met them, and I know the goals that they had. Uh, did all our bills pass? No, they didn't. Are there disappointments? Yes, there are. And there's disappointments every session. We've never reached 5,000 bills in the House before. I got bill number 5,000, and we blew through that to about 6,300 bills. That's not counting what the Senate did. So you've got almost 8,000 uh, total if you don't uh, know much about the legislature, the Texas legislature is designed to kill bills, not pass bills. So if your bill actually makes it all the way through the House process, all of the way through the Senate process, and uh, then on to the governor, and he actually signs it, uh, that's, that's a pretty incredible feat. And it took a lot, a lot of work, and it took a lot of coordination. We think of the House and the, the Senate um, primarily in R&Ds, because that's the way we're, we're conditioned. And, um, but a lot of it turns out to be rural versus urban. And in the end, your relationship with, with individuals in those bodies is how you advance the causes. And uh, they say, well, we have a majority. Why don't we have all our bills? Because not everything takes a simple majority. Uh, we have 85, there's 150 members. You have to have 76 votes to pass your, your whatever it is you want to pass. And um, so we're still short. In my, and that means you've got to still have relationships with somebody, at least 15 of them, to get them to come over and help you pass the things you need to pass, like the one thing constitutionally required to do is the budget. That takes 100 votes. It takes two-thirds. These constitutional amendments that are coming up, like the right to farm and uh, the, the tax cut, those things take 100 votes to get that on the ballot so we can vote for it. That means you've got to have some kind of relationship with more than just ours to get that done. Now, I don't trust the Democrats more than anybody else in this room. I've been working virtually my whole adult life to change that.
I was there when we changed Texas from, from Democrat to Republican. I was there when we flipped Waller County. I was there when we were changing some of these other counties. And those were all good times back then because we were we felt like we were making progress. But in the end, in the legislature, that set is what you get to work with. That's who the people of Texas elect. If we don't, and, and this is where you come into play. If we don't like Democrats in the Texas legislature, then we need to be Democrats. You've got Republicans working for you. We need to go help those other counties, those other districts, and take out Democrats. It's the numbers that matter. We get 100 votes with 100 Republicans, and we can do anything we want to. And um, I, if there's going to be somebody that says, well, he's just, you know, he's just taking up for the Democrats. That's not true. I've never in my life got to pick who I work with. I see we've got a combat infantry soldier back there. In your platoon, if you get to pick all those people and decide who you're going to work with, no, you got handed who Uncle Sam handed you, right? And you still had to accomplish the goal. Well, we get handed each session what the people of Texas send us. And there's people that are on that far left. We had one, we were taking up a bill to uh, allow the national motto to be put in the classroom. The teacher would have the discretion of putting God we trust on the wall. And there was a lot of debate about that. And one of the, one of the Democrat representatives said she did not want her children to go anywhere where they saw the word God. So the letter G-O-D must scare that woman. With good reason, I would think that she ought to be scared <laughs> of those words. And she'll find that out one day. But what a sad thing for her children. But she wanted to impose that on the rest of the state as well. We passed that bill. Uh, the bill um, against transgender mutilation. A lot of debate. Tough bill to pass. We passed that bill. That bill is now law. Um, let's see. Bills to make sure that we reinforce parents' rights in the classroom to know what's in that curriculum, what that teacher's teaching, what kind of textbooks they're going to have. We increase that strength back to the parents. Limiting um, books in the libraries that are essentially pornographic. We passed that bill. Now, my mother was a middle school librarian. And it's really, in, in my upbringing, kind of hard for me to fathom how any books like that would get in public schools uh, in, in any great numbers. She read every book that ever she ever put in that library. She would sit there at night with a stack of books and she would read them all. She didn't put a book in that library that she didn't personally approve of. And how we got out, maybe she just had more discipline than others, but how we got to what we heard testimony about uh, this is not just Romeo and Juliet or talking about holding hands. This is this is graphic, terrible stuff. And we passed the bill to end that, uh, not without some some gnashing and teeth and howling from the other side. Um, the crown the crowning point for all of us as Texans is we pass this tax cut. It's the largest tax cut in Texas history. It's the largest tax cut in America. That tax cut is bigger than some states' whole budgets. That tax cut is bigger than some countries' whole budgets. Is that the end? No, it's not the end. And I don't think anybody 
And often, in our Republican leaders anyway, including the governor on down, I don't think any of them take that as the end. But it is a pretty good doggone start, and it's the legislature's intent that you have more money in your pocket uh, than you would have had before, and uh, it's, it's a sign to, uh, way to keep working and work to reduce your taxes and make it more, more equitable for you. We use this word equity all of a sudden. Well, there's a meaning to that word, and equitable for you, the taxpayer, is the goal. And Republicans fought for you for that. They did. And I was proud to be among them. I was proud to um, help pass that bill uh, that will result in the constitutional amendment that now requires you to go vote. So the November ballot is important um, for a lot of reasons. We always believe in voting. But these 14 constitutional amendments, I encourage you to look at them, look and see if you think you can agree with them. There's a couple of them that I kind of wonder about. But, uh, but there's some good ones there. The tax cut being one of them. The COLA for retired teachers being one of them. And the right to farm. I want to close with that real quick. Um, I was fortunate enough to be on the Agriculture and the Livestock Committee, which is good for our district. I was fortunate enough to be on um, the Natural Resources Committee, which is water, and that's good for our district. But right to farm, you, you say, what is that all about? And, and most of us would say, why are we even talking about this? As, as the municipalities encroach on formerly rural land, specifically agriculture land, um, they bring their ordinances and rules with them. And when you have a city come out and tell the farmer that, uh, hey, we don't like seeing those brown bells in your pasture out there, that's against our city ordinance. Or we want you to put up a privacy fence because we don't like seeing what cows and bulls do together out there in the pasture. Um, or, as in the case of one, one hay farmer, uh, He'd been farming for, for years in his hay operation. It was his, his big operation. His grass got up over six inches tall, and the city came out and mowed his hay field and sent him the bill for it. So we, we passed bills that are a whole series of right farm, including about how farmers and ranchers can burn and different things like that. But we want to enshrine that in the Texas Constitution. I don't know if you know, but there's a there's a right to hunt and fish in the Texas Constitution. I'm always wondering if a kid plays hooky, is that uh, <laughs> constitutional? And they can't punish him for that. Um, I kind of think he ought to get away with it. <laughs> but, but we want to enshrine this right to farm in the Texas Constitution so as, as people move out, they can't unduly take away that farmer or rancher's uh, right to, to feed their family and, and take care of their business. As long, and, and the short of it is, as long as they've been engaged in production agriculture for a year on that property, they can continue to do that. And um, now, land use changes, that, that's a whole different thing, and that gets back to private property rights. What do they have a right to do with their property? But this protects farming and ranching, and uh, I'm particularly, um, attuned to that because I really have Nikki, by the way, my chief of staff is here. Um, Nikki's tired of me hearing it saying it, but every acre we take out of production agriculture is one less acre feeding Americans. And if we think um, oil is a strategic commodity, 
his trough food. Mao killed 70 million Chinese. He shot a bunch of them, but he starved a whole lot of them. And the food can be a weapon, and we don't want Americans put into that situation. And as much as we can, uh, I would like to see that the, the state regulations are not the reason that someone can't farm or, or engage in their agricultural process. So that's kind of a short run. I do want to introduce Nikki Gonzalez. Our office is available to you. Nikki is my chief of staff. Uh, she uh, comes to us with a lot of experience, and I was uh, thankful and grateful and, and uh, honored to have her join me. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of representatives and even some senators that showed up this session uh, that didn't have staff. Uh, they weren't ready when it started. Nikki had already kicked things off for me. She's there in our capital office. She's available to you. Nathaniel Gistel is, is my district director. Uh, once you see him, you won't forget him. He's, he's bald-headed, but he's got a beard like this. He's a bona fide uh, combat airborne medic. He's used to taking care of infantrymen. I was, I was glad to have him come try to take care of me. Our district office is in Belleville in the courthouse. The commissioners there in Austin County uh, made us a, a good deal on the rent. And so that's our district office. But just because it's Belleville doesn't mean that it's not available to you. We have, um, as I said, six counties. I know what it's like through my experience over the years to have a representative that uh, gets elected and you don't ever see them again. I don't want anybody in our district feeling that way about, about this office and this representative. And uh, if we know about an event, if, if we can, uh, if you care to invite <laughs> us to some places, we'll be there. Uh, believe me, we're running every day. Uh, Nathaniel's. Uh, wearing the tires off his car, and I, I bought a new Jeep, uh, got it in February, and I turned 18,000 miles this week. Uh, so we're running, but we're proud to do that. That's part of what we do. I intend to represent the people of this district. We want to be there with you, and uh, we encourage you to call or communicate with us, and uh, that's, that's what we do. And uh, so thank you for giving me the honor of, of serving you. Thank you for uh, the support that you've given me. Fayette County is, is one of my favorite places too. And uh, I, I'm glad to brag and tell people that I get to represent Fayette County. Thank you very much. Representative, I know you've given us a lot of your time, but just this last week, Washington is making it sound like they're not gonna let the illegals that have come into our state be sent to other states because those wimps in New York can't cope. So they're talking about keeping everybody here. What is the latest on the border for Texas? Well, I've been to the border for the Department of Public Safety tours a couple of times. Um, it's a tough deal because we are dealing with a constitutional situation. And uh, it's, it's something that I think all of us in, in our, our we want to do one thing, but in the end, our law enforcement officers have sworn to uphold the law and the Constitution of the United States, and those troopers have to follow the law. They're not political people; they're law enforcement officers. And uh, I don't—I think there's a challenge to that already. I think the governor was—I I heard something from last night where the feds can say we can't send them out, but he's still going to send them anyway. Um, 
we did pass in the budget um, more money for the border effort. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole list of things. Uh, that gets handed over to the Commander-in-Chief and, and let him use those tools. Just came into effect December 1st, so we, we've obviously not seen the full effect of that yet. But the idea, you know, and I'm, I'm angry like you, that the Chief Executive of the United States of America would neglect his duty to protect the citizens of Texas and the rest of the country um, is, is appalling. Uh, but the state of Texas doing everything they can, legally, to, uh, to try to counteract that. The problem is we're, we're not equipped for that. And uh, hopefully some of these new laws and, and, and funding will help, help correct some of that. But I'll give you an instance. We've, we've had a National Guard border presence for decades. I spent 21 years in the, in the Texas Army National Guard. Always had friends that were down there working the border missions. Uh, that was constant, 365 days a year for years. But the states got reimbursed from the federal government for that. So our guardsmen were augmenting ICE, they were augmenting the Border Patrol, they were providing the service to the federal government to help them with their law enforcement and their obligated uh, requirement to protect the border. This right now, is, is, is they, they totally vacated that. So the federal government, in this state Gibson's opinion, is actively aiding and abetting in, in bringing these folks across the border. They're actually aiding and abetting in what I, and I think many of you feel like is an invasion. Um, and Texas is trying to hold the line uh, where they can. And uh, it's very frustrating for our troopers. It's frustrating for our um, game wardens that are working down there. We've got National Guardsmen, but my point coming back to it is Texas is having to pay for all of that now. So those extra troopers that are down there working, uh, that added expense of, of fuel and cars and, and whatever else, we have to bear that brunt. Paying National Guardsmen enough money that they can live off of, uh, that's coming straight out of the Texas budget now. That's not being reimbursed at all by the feds. And, uh, just a, another little example, usually if, if the National Guard, especially uh, post-Katrina, is called out like a worker hurricane, a FEMA would reimburse the state for that expense. But this stuff at the border is being borne solely on the backs of, of Texas and the Texas taxpayers. So there's a limit to what we can do with that. But again, we increased, we increased that budget. Uh, we, we made it... Uh, uh, we increased the penalty for human smuggling. That's another thing that I could spend a lot of time talking about because that was particularly passionate to me, but that's, that's a whole other talk. But very serious. It's, it's worse than, than what we even hear on the news because yeah. I think the news kind of agrees with some of it. Uh, my big disappointment when I went down there and saw the buoys was they were only a thousand feet long. Right. I, I, I wanted the whole river covered with those things. So they were. Uh, they, they, where people were crossing, and they put those buoys, they don't cross there anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's uh, it's effective, and I guess that's why Joe Biden doesn't like it. Right. <laughs> anyway, thank y'all for your time, and thanks for having me. Thank you, Representative Kisson. You, All right, uh, moving on, I'm gonna call Tim Greeson.
He is going to be um, a candidate for House District 85 in 2024. So. Yep. Thank you, Doug. My name is Tim Greeson. I'm running to be the state rep for District 85. And the primary is March 5th, so uh, please put it on the calendar. Uh, Deborah asked me to come out here and give you this, uh, tell you uh, who I am, why I'm running, and what I stand for. She said I've got about three hours to squeeze it in, so I think I can manage that. All right. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, who am I? Well, number one, I'm a husband, and I'm a dad, and I'm a Christian. I, uh, I believe uh, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I go to church regularly. I tell people about him. I'm a husband. I have an awesome wife. She takes good care of our family. I have two little daughters, uh, six and four, Evelyn and Olive. And uh, they, uh, they are the joy of my life, and, and they're a big reason why I'm running, because I see our future continuing to slip away. To tell you about how I grew up, I grew up down in Richmond, Texas, just down the road here. And I went to Texas A&M University uh, for college. I got an engineering degree, and I uh, moved to Houston for a few years where I worked in oil and gas. Saved up, uh, saved up enough money to pay for a house payment, uh, down payment, and moved to Sealy. So I circled a 30-minute window around I-10 and Highway 6 because I thought I'd always have a job there. Circled a 45-minute window around Richmond where my parents still live so that I could get free babysitting, but they can't just stop by anytime they want to. <laughs> Landed, crossed right there in Sealy, Texas. I've lived there since 2008. I've been in our district for about 15 years. I love living in a small town. I love going to Walmart and seeing people that I go to church with. Uh, my uh, older daughter, Evelyn, she's doing softball this year, graduated from T-ball. Her coach is the Sealy ISD superintendent. You don't get that living in Katy. You don't get that living in, in Houston. It's only in small towns like our communities out here that we have that, and I love it. Growing up, you can't tell by looking at me, but I have a neuromuscular disease. I still have it today. Um, it makes me physically weaker with less endurance. And I, at the time, it made, I actually was in a wheelchair for my junior high, high school, and part of my college years. So they thought that there was a version of my disease where if, uh, if uh, I worked out, that it would turn terminal. So they said, don't, don't work out. All right. So I would use a wheelchair to get from class to class, say, in high school, and then I would walk around the classroom when I was in high school. Well, about the time I went to college, I had switched from a manual wheelchair to a scooter because I, you needed a physical, you needed a scooter to get around a and I had my disease in my arm, too, and uh, uh, A&M's a very big campus, so I had this electric scooter, and it stopped working. So I borrowed one from the school, and it stopped working. So I borrowed one from my great-grandpa, and it stopped working. Finally, my dad brought one up, so I had four scooters in my dorm room. And you know how big a college dorm room it is. <laughs> My roommate, who wasn't religious at the time at all, he looked at me and said, you think God's trying to tell you something? <laughs> I said, you know what, I'm pretty hard-headed, but you might correct. At that time, I called the doctor. She said, you know, we've been doing a lot of research. doesn't seem to be the case. You can work out. You can actually start walking some and try it. So we got rid of all the scooters, just did it on faith, and I started walking. I sat on every bench along the way from my dorm room to the engineering college. A week later, I built enough muscle, I sat on every other bench, every third bench, third week, six, seven weeks into it, sorry, six, seven weeks into it, I had to use a wheelchair since then. So, I still have my disease, but uh, I, uh, uh, you wouldn't know unless I told you. So, I do, it still affects me a little bit. When I get tired, sometimes I slur my speech, it's not because I've been drinking and presenting, doing my best impression of the speaker of the house. 
<laughs> I just get tired and I'm slower in my speech, but it's not, uh, it's not, it's not, it's not bad. So, um, so that said, uh, one thing God has done in my life, it's never, all the things he's done, it's never been just for me. It's always to serve somebody else. I have a friend named David. He, uh, uh, had shin muscular dystrophy, which is a terminal disease. He's passed away since then at the age of 29. But he was going to college too. He was right next door to me. His roommate wasn't coming back. My roommate wasn't coming back to him. So he needed someone to live with him. He required nearly 24 hour care. The state had a program to pay for some of his care, but not all of it. So I decided to be able, I was glad and happy to be able to live with my friend David. And I was able to help him and serve him. He needed help eating, he needed help going to the bathroom, both he and who. Um, so as a 19-year-old, I'm helping pick him up off of his wheelchair, put him on the potty, wipe him when he's done, put him back on. So every time God does something in my life, it's to serve people. It's not just for me. Since then, living in Sealy, I have joined a volunteer fire department. I've been a volunteer firefighter EMT for more than 10 years. Um, I also, in my engineering career, I, I've, always, I've always loved serving people. But God said, man, you need to use your engineering to help people. And I said, oh, how in the world do you do that? That's weird. Well, there's an urban surgery rescue group based in College Station called Texas Task Force One. So I joined them about the same time I joined the fire department. I go out with them a lot. Um, it's a, not quite as intense as the National Guard, but it's similar. We have trainings you have to make six or seven times a year. Um, and we get deployed. So we go to disaster areas. Uh, the governor or the president can call us. We're a dual state and FEMA team. And we do house-to-house searches. Um, we go to uh, the team that's been deployed to 9-11, delayering uh, uh, collapse structures looking for victims, hopefully live, oftentimes, unfortunately, deceased. It's a team of mostly firefighters that do heavy rescue uh, type firefighters. Uh, but they also, we have doctors, we have um, uh, medical specialists, we have dogs that are both lifeline and, and human beings, dogs. And so we, uh, I've really enjoyed doing that. My job with the team is to analyze collapse and partially collapse buildings to tell, tell them where uh, live or deceased victims may be. If we detect a victim, then my job is to go back to that structure and help the firefighters figure out how to shore that structure so they can get in there and get the victim out <clears throat> safely without it collapsing uh, any further. So, um, I've been to a lot of disaster areas. My first deployment ever was the uh, fertilizer plant explosion in West Texas. So you all remember that. Uh, I was in Hurricane Harvey. I rode it out in Robstown right through the storm. We were over in Porter Ranches doing house-to-house searches while the hurricane was over San Antonio. We followed it all the way over here to Houston. I, uh, uh, my latest deployments, I was up in Perryton, what was that, five weeks ago, uh, the tornado. And uh, I'm still catching up because I was going to Florida for the for Idaho, the hurricane. Thankfully, the Florida deployment, we didn't do a whole lot. We just drove over there and uh, uh, waited around. The hurricane kind of missed the urban centers. So there wasn't a lot for us to do. Perryton, we did house to house searches. And, there were a few co-op structures that we helped out the local fire department too. So to <clears throat> summarize my, uh, my upbringing, where I'm at today, I, um, I uh, have cleaned up a lot of poop, and I'm used to walking around disaster areas 
which means I'm pretty qualified to go to the Texas House of Representatives, which is exactly where you're coming from. So, I want to go over kind of what, why I'm running. To start with, the first thing that brought my attention, I, I, I've always voted, I've considered myself to be a Republican, but I paid attention, I followed it, but I woke up one day and I, our inter Attorney General, Ken Paxton, was impeached. And I said, what in the world? What is going on here? He's the only guy in Austin who's actually fighting for us. Why are they getting this one Sorry, y'all. I'm fighting these allergies. It's a terrible time to be having allergies. So, I started getting into it. I'm an engineer, I'm a numbers guy. Um, started looking at our current representatives' voting record and, and the Republicans in general. So I heard it said that the Democrats are the fractured party and the Republicans are not fractured. Yeah, what a crap, huh? You feel that way, but I like numbers. Is it true or not? Let's look at the data. I looked at the data and I compared how many people, how many times somebody votes differently than somebody else. So you look at, say, a Republican, you compare it to a Republican, and if they vote the same way, you, you, you can add up the total amount of differences, okay? Total for Democrats. <coughs> Democrats agree with other Democrats more often than Republicans 48 out of 64 times. In other words, if you compare, that means that a Democrat is less likely or is going to vote against another Democrat before they vote against a Republican. 48 times. Sorry, no, way around. You're going to vote with Democrats over Republicans. 75%. 75% of the time. Sorry. 48 out of 64. Republicans, on the other hand, they only vote with other Republicans 25 out of 86 of the time. In other words, if you look at the top differences in votes, Republicans disagree with other Republicans more often than they disagree with the Democrats. 26% of the time. Our current representative, if you look at his voting record, about three of his top five are other Republicans. I think that's unacceptable. The Republicans are the fractured party, not the Democrats. <clears throat> so I started looking again, and I looked at our current representative record, and I said, how many times did he bought the party? How many times did he vote with a Democrat majority against the Republican majority? The answer to that is 78. 78 times he voted with a uh, Democrat majority against a Republican majority. Uh, and so I wonder, well, you know, it takes thousands of votes. How does that compare, right? I mean, maybe that's not, is that good, is that bad? I have no idea. So I looked, and uh, the... Uh, most, you know, I got to pick several different uh, other Republicans. Now was getting 12s, 29, somewhere in that range. So our current representative votes with Democrats about four times as often as most of your average Republicans. <clears throat> That's got to stop. That doesn't represent me. That doesn't represent my values. I don't think it represents yours. 
right, let's go over some of the other stuff here. I, uh, Sir? Yes? Just a couple of minutes more. Okay. Sure. We got a bunch of people. Oh, I thought I had 20 minutes. I'm sorry? I thought I had 20 minutes. Uh, so it's been 15. 15? Okay. All right. Well, I'll skip ahead. If you go over the Republican, uh, you look at the Republican Party uh, priorities, we, uh, we basically didn't accomplish, we, we got what, two or three out of the eight. We got four out of schools, which is good, but uh, we did not, we did not get a lot. What did we get? We got a 25% increase in our state budget. Is that conservative? No. Did we get property tax relief in the red recession? No. We got a little bit of relief in a special session, but did they fix the problem? No. What's the problem? It's the appraisal system. Now, I believe that property tax in general is immoral. I would like to see us get on the path to get rid of it, but it should be gone completely. I understand how to do something in between, but the problem is the appraisal system. It's not the caps. Nothing to be done about that. <clears throat> we attempted to pass a mileage tax. Mileage tax is designed to get you out of your car. Our current representative voted for that. Okay, I'll put it on the social media. I'll link it to you. Be sure you put. Thanks for the interrupt. That's too much. I said I think that's too much. Going orders, right? Be a little respectful. Okay. Thanks. So. What, who am I? I'm running on the Republican side. Um, a better word for me is anti-communist. Our, our, our country is drifting left. Our state is drifting left. Communism is taking over, and we have got to start fighting against them. And I am willing to fight against them. You look at communist revolutions around the world, and we're in the midst of ours. We need to stop. We need to stop that now. We need to fight against it. And I'm willing to fight against it for you. Thanks. Speakers. Move on. Move on. All right. There we go. Okay. 
I'm going to ask Kimberly to come up and introduce these ladies because she was the one who helped me out when our first main speaker canceled at the last minute. And Kimberly stepped up. Thank you. Kimberly Ruggage again. I'll tell you, I wish I could speak publicly like Brandon can speak publicly. That was awesome. But I can't. So, Laura Bartlett and Greta Crawford have been fierce patient advocates in their own right since the COVID pandemic. But when they came together, they found a strategy for patients to advocate for themselves and protect themselves before they ever go into a hospital. COVID revealed the hidden truth about how hospital doctors did not respect or honor patients' decisions, which led to over a million deaths in America alone. Bartlett Crawford founded OurPatientRights.com and have been sharing this information for free and even had the documents translated to Spanish to expand the reach of saving lives. The strategy and documents are so revolutionary that leaders like Dr. Joseph Mercola and G. Edward Griffin say this information needs to be shared with everyone everywhere. So I'd like to introduce our speakers today, Laura and Greta. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having us. Um, hopefully you'll leave here with some uh, important information and some documents that can help save your life. Uh, we'd like to start with a few clips. These are actual um, patients that we have actually spoken to. And uh, we'd just like to give you an understanding of what's going on in the hospitals. So let's see if I can get this one. Let's
And um, unfortunately, what you heard is um, two patients who are no longer with us. They did not die in the hospital, they were murdered in the hospital. Um, I'm very familiar with this. And I'll tell you about my story. My story starts when my whole family got voted. Um, my husband got it first, and uh, we immediately called the frontline doctors and got it ivermectin. And uh, it was really hard to get that. It took about two weeks for it to come in, and the pharmacy only wanted to, to prescribe half of it. Uh, in the meantime, both my kids got sick, but they were able to get over in about three days. Um, in the process, I got sick, and um, I just thought, well, I'll take my vitamins and stuff, and I'll, I'll get better. My husband started to get better. But I didn't, my body started reacting differently. So I started calling up blood clots. And at that point I said, this is serious. So I went to my doctor and was in his office and coughed up blood clots right in front of him. He's like, you know, not, not really impressed by that. And um, <laughs> he said, here, here's an inhaler. You have COVID, you have the flu, you have pneumonia. Um, and take this medication go home. Okay, so I took medication, uh, went home after a few days. I had a pulse ox meter and I was having trouble breathing and realized with that meter I was down to 66% oxygen. And I told my husband I cannot breathe, I'm going to die. And at that point, I had to go to the emergency room. In the emergency room, and I don't know if there were not oxygen, but you're not making very good. Um, I had thought my husband was behind me, and he wasn't, he was locked out. He sat in the parking lot for four hours, they wouldn't let him in. And in the ER, the only thing I remember is them asking me over and over and over again, are you vaccinated, are you vaccinated, are you vaccinated? And I had done my research. I was thought I was prepared. I had uh, researched the marriage report, I don't know if y'all know what that is. Um, that's where they report vaccine injuries and incidents. And I had gone into the data and saw that this vaccine had killed and injured more people than all vaccines combined in the previous 10 years. So I knew I was not getting this vaccine and no one in my family, immediate family, was gonna get this. And I told him no, no, no. I got oxygen, got to feeling better, and I thought, okay, I'm gonna go home, they're gonna put me on some blood thinners, and this is over. And then they informed me, no, you're going to stay because we have this COVID medication. Again, I thought, well, I've done research. Steroids seem to be helping. So they're going to give me some steroids. I did not know about the drug remdesivir. I did not know about informed consent. And the uh, doctor came up to me, or nurse came up to me and said, uh, have you been vaccinated? At this point, I'm feeling better because I have oxygen. I said, no, I'm not vaccinated. And I'm never going to be vaccinated. I don't believe in experimental drugs for vaccines. I'm not a lab rat. And he proceeded to inject me with the experimental drug on disappear. And from that point on, I got five rounds of it, uh, which nearly killed me. Uh, it, it was, from the first point on, I went downhill completely. Um, I had pain like I never had before, I couldn't understand why. Um, my hands and feet began to swell, huge. And at that time, I didn't know my kidneys were shutting down. And I asked my doctor, I said, why are my hands and feet swelling? And he looked at the floor and he said, we don't know, COVID's strange. And then he left the room. <laughs> and I said, what, what is going on here? You know, I've never seen anything like this. Um, and every day, 
They would give me this drug at nighttime, and I'd have a reaction, a terrible reaction. They'd always give it to me at night. Um, uh, it, it would be that my white blood cell count was dangerously high levels. Um, I did not know that I was being poisoned. Um, I would have vomit. I ended up uh, getting blood clots in my leg because they gave me another drug called baricitinib, which they didn't even tell me about until I read my medical records after I left the hospital. Um, that, that drug is not to be given to anyone with any kind of clotting problems. Well, I was coughing up blood clots in front of them, so I, I think that's a clotting problem. Um, the last two nights, they came in to do CPR on me because my heart rate dropped to 30 beats per minute. Um, it was so painful. Uh, it felt like 10,000 knives were stabbing me from within. There was no reprieve from the pain. There was no position I could get in. There was nothing I could do. Um, my lungs were completely filled with fluid, and I don't know if anybody's experienced that, but it is so painful. You don't sleep. You don't do anything but think about the pain. And at one point, I prayed, and I said, Lord, take this pain away, please. And then I stopped, and I thought, well, that could mean ending my life. And I said, Lord, I want to change that prayer. <laughs> I said, Lord, please help me to endure this pain. I said, ultimately, your will be done. I said, if I die, I will serve you in heaven. But if I live, I will serve you here on earth, whatever that can be. And at that point, I lost all fear. And I realized that faith and fear cannot occupy the same space. That one will outgrow the other, and we have to decide which one to fill ourselves with, and then we need to act accordingly. And so from that point on, it was total faith. And they would come in, and they would tell me one life-threatening thing after another, and I would just be like, I don't care, because I didn't care. It was all up to God, not what they told me, not what they tried to scare me with. I did have one doctor who was my pulmonologist who came in every day to harass me. That was her goal. She would come in every day and say, you need to be vaccinated. Your husband needs to be vaccinated. Your kids need to be vaccinated. Everybody needs to be vaccinated. She never listened to my lungs. She never assessed me, not one time. All she did was come in to threaten me and harass me. She said, and I told her, I said, I'm not getting vaccinated. It's not happening. And she said, well, you're going to leave here. You're going to get COVID again. And when you come back, we're going to put you on a ventilator and you're going to die. Do you want that? And I remember researching the ventilators too. And I knew they were killing people with the ventilators. Their ventilators do not help people with COVID, period. The end. They kill people. And so I told her, I said, if you know for a fact that a ventilator is going to kill your patient, why would you put them on a ventilator? And she said, well, we have to do with the patient requests. Like, they're wanting up to be put on life support. Save that one back there for me. I can't wait to be put on life support. No. And I said, well, if you're taking requests, I'm requesting um, ivermectin and HCP. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. We can't get that. That's not approved. And I said, so you're telling me you'll give a patient the treatment that you know for a fact will kill them because it's approved, but you won't give them a treatment that could possibly save their life because it's unapproved. And she just got mad and left the room. And that didn't stop her. She'd come back again and again and again, and we'd have this fight. And uh, one day she came in and she says, People, I know the dad, I know the dad. 80% uh, of the people here are dying, they're unvaxxed. And I said, I know the dad too. I looked at the marriage report. 
I said, I, I know uh, what this vaccine is doing to people, and I could have read a VAERS report. And she says, what is this VAERS? And I said, you don't know what the VAERS report is? And I said, you're talking about data, and you don't even know where to go to get the data? And she says, I know what's happening in this hospital. I said, what happens in this hospital doesn't make up the whole population of the world or the United States. I said, you're a doctor, then you take statistics in you know, basic high school? And I realized she was a complete idiot. I did not know at that time that you can actually fire your doctor. I didn't know any of this. Um, I should have said you're fired. Um, we, we went back and forth and back and forth. And fortunately, thanks to Senator Bob Hall, uh, I don't know if y'all know him, but um, yeah, we had passed a bill that allowed one religious council in the room at the time. We didn't even know about it. Apparently somebody in the hospital knew about it because my husband was allowed to come in, um, but from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Of course, after he left, at 10, around 10 o'clock is when they gave you a visitor, which I thought was strange. Um, and, and very strategically planned, by the way. But at one point she came in and she looked at me and she looked at my husband and she said, I can tell you are both very well educated. And I thought, what, what does that have to do with anything? You're not here to judge my educational level. You're here to assess my health. But yet she's sizing me up, you know? And I'm thinking, what is going on here? Um, it, 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 the whole thing was as strange as strange can be. But I didn't know fully what was going on. So I eventually got out of the hospital after enduring this, you know, terrible ordeal. And when I did, I got home and I just had the most pain ever, had terrible recovery, couldn't walk, had needed oxygen, um, wondered if I was still gonna make it, because uh, it took months to recover. And then by going on Facebook, people were telling me, you know, you've been poisoned, they tried to kill you. And I was like, no, 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 they didn't try to kill me. Yes, they did. Here's, you know, a report on Remdesivir. So I looked at the report on Remdesivir and read it and found out that, you know, in its first trial, it was an Ebola trial in Africa, it killed 53% of the patients. And it's the one and only drug approved to treat COVID, by the way. The only drug that they're going to give you a protocol that killed over half of the patients. They actually had to pull it from the trial because it was so deadly. And so we don't even know how many people it would have killed. And we don't know how many people it injured for the rest of their lives because it destroys your kidneys, your lungs, your liver, everything. So uh, that's when I realized what was going on. And then I, I put it all together, hindsight's 2020. Um, people did not die from COVID. They died from the lack of uh, safe and effective treatments. Yes. And from the protocol that was pushed on it. That's how they got yeah. And then I realized they had to drive those numbers up because if everyone was getting better at home, there's no need for a vaccine. Yes, or funding. So we had, they had, sorry, not we, they had to push those numbers up. They had to show that people were dying to instill fear in all Americans so they would run out and get this vaccine that is Absolutely horrendous. Um, after I learned all this information, it all came together. I started sharing this information, and of course, I, I was you know people were shutting me down. No, you're crazy. Block. You know, you're you're just talking about you're unhinged. That's a good word um, that they like to use. And then I came across people who experienced worse. You know, most of them didn't come out a lot. And I thought these people need a platform. 
So I created a website called protocolpills.com, and on there there were over 250 stories about um, hospital experiences. The majority of them, unfortunately, are dead. I have over 100 stories to post, but because there's so many uh, stories and only one of me, it's hard to get all of them up there. But there are thousands upon thousands of these stories. And I put the information of Remdesivir up there. I put the information of the payouts that they get for every uh, process of the protocol. I put all this information up there and, um, and wanted to get it out there and wanted to warn the public what was going on. But I also thought, um, I don't want to just warn people and have them stay at home and die because the irony is, had I stayed at home, I would die. I needed oxygen. So I went to a place where you know I got the oxygen to, to live, and then, ironically, they tried to kill me. But um, I, I made it out by the grace of God. He had a purpose for me. And uh, after building this site and, and trying to find solutions, I came across Laura Bartlett. And she was actually um, rescuing people from the hospitals. So people who were shut in the hospitals, she was pulling them out. And I thought, uh, wow. And, and she, she was the only one that wasn't doing this for money, because I wasn't doing it for money. And when I saw her, I knew, OK, this is somebody I need to work with. So I'm going to let her introduce herself here. I'm also tech. So she looked at the, the laptop and was like, do it. Click, click. Button. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't take any money doing what I'm doing. I have it for three years. It's all free, 24 hours a day. Um, anytime you call and need help, I answered a hotline number that I created. Um, I was kind of prepared. I think God was preparing me for this uh, because uh, I have a stand up comedy background. I'm a comedian. <laughs> it pays about the same. And, uh, so, yeah, I was pretty used to that. And uh, I, I'm executive producer of an all-female stand-up comedy troupe in Dallas, Texas. I'm just telling you this little bit of backstory, not to put butts in the seat next year. By the way, that last uh, segue before we came up was kind of like a little PTSD for me because I was like, oh my gosh, hecklers and the lights are on. This is going to be scary. This is, I don't know if I can do this. But anyway, so that, that's a little bit about my backstory with comedy that was going on at the same time that I was building a company with my then millennial son. I raised my two boys as a single mom, so I can relate to the single mom thing for over 15 years. I'm just recently an empty nester. We were successful launching this business, so he's, he's launched and it's uh, the product uh, that we brought to market, a brand new invention for wine. Any drinkers in here? Any day drinkers? All right. It's, it's a bottle stopper that's been featured twice on, on a segment with Kathy Lee and, and Hoda on the Today Show. So um, got a little bit of a publicity background. So I know PR very well, and, and that helps. That's helping now. So God can use all, this is all to say, God can use someone like me. A comedian, single mom, not getting paid, somehow making it work for three years to do what I'm doing. It's that important. I thank all of you for coming out. Sounds like comedy. Thanks for coming out. Take your mics down. Thanks for, thanks for coming out today to hear this because it's really important. And it literally can save your life. Um, I don't know if I need to go into any hospital rescues, but I've been rescuing people from coast to coast. 
My first rescue was in 2020. Didn't know the person who was um, who was the victim. Didn't know the son of the victim. I'm in Texas. The victim is in a hospital in New Jersey uh, who went there just for a urinary tract infection. I'm just going to tell you how crazy this can be. Just wanted to get treated. His own doctor was scared to see anybody early 2020, right? Everybody was kind of locked down and scared and cowering. And so he went to the emergency room. This son is, is terrified that his dad is in the process of being killed. He is almost unrecognizable. They're not giving him any nutrition. He's losing body weight every day. He's starting to get like ICU psychosis. They're ready to put him on a ventilator. Now I'm involved. This was very scary. First rescued. And I said, he's, you know, who are my dad? Can't tell you what to do. This isn't medical advice or legal advice, but I would get him out. And it took a lot of negotiating. I call myself a hostage negotiator um, to get him to the mental point of getting his dad out. And guess what? The hospital didn't like it. They told him, you're going to die. You're going to kill your dad if you take him home. The hospitals, your hospital bill isn't going to be covered by insurance or Medicare, Medicaid, whatever the financial situation was. But mostly scare tactics that he's going to die. But you know what? He did it. He got his dad out of the hospital. They were, the hospital was not, like I said, taking uh, a lot of interest in him leaving because that's potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars walking out the door. And so guess how this man left? Barefoot in a hospital gown with a catheter still attached. They refused to even help with that. So anyway, and many, many, many stories after that, but thank you for coming because honestly, this is something that's going to save your life or somebody that you care about. Even if you don't care about it, save your life. <laughs> okay, we're, we're gonna give you an example of what uh, Happens here. Oh, oh, we're just starting. <laughs> <laughs> the, the fun is just. Oh my gosh, like, should we just have 15 minutes? Or, <laughs> come on, doctors. Yeah. It's going to be tough with one, one mic. Yeah. Can you guys hear me in the back of the room if I talk like this? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Scene. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Jekyll. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's see. We've got uh, Miss. Crawford, Miss Greta Crawford, what brings you into the ER today? Uh, I'm, I'm not feeling well. I'm having trouble breathing. Um, just overall, I feel very poor. Okay. Well, um, you're, you're covered in backs, right? No. What? No. You're the, the COVID vaccine. No. You didn't, you, we, you, we need to get you started on that. Let's, no. let's get you a COVID vaccine. No, I'm not here to get the vaccine. I'm not vaccinated. I'm not going to get vaccinated. Well, that's probably why you feel sick. No, I'm not, I'm not here for the vaccine. I'm not getting vaccinated. Okay, well, look, let's just get you COVID tested, okay? Okay, so well, if I'm COVID tested, I don't want remdesivir. You don't want remdesivir? No. Do you understand that that's part of the protocol? I've, I don't care about your protocol. I've already done my research. I don't want remdesivir. Okay, I'm going to make a note here in the chart. Patient is... Combative, <laughs> argumentative, might have a personality disorder. <laughs> Listen, just just relax. 
Yes, we're just gonna, you don't have to worry about anything. We're just gonna get you fixed up. We really care about you and getting feeling better. So let's just go ahead and get some, some tests, some general tests, see what's going on, all right? Okay. Uh, I would like to be informed of every medication before you get it to me, please. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course, yeah, we'll do that. Uh, nurse, um, let's go ahead. She's got every symptom of COVID. Just don't worry about that test. Um, go ahead and get her started on the full protocol. Just, um, you know, about Desivir or Sinitive, uh, Eliquis, and um, IV Dexamethasone. Let's just go ahead and get started. See. As you can see, somebody's lying. Did you pick up on that? <laughs> I'm a comedian and a liar. <laughs> Although she's a comedian, and that was funny, this actually happens every single day. Um, we know, because we've heard it, we've experienced it. Um, uh, she's done a lot of hospital rescues happen on the phone with her to witness this. So, um, yeah, this happens all the time, every single day, in every single hospital in America. Yeah, so I'd like to say that's an exaggeration, but it really is not. No. It, it's not at all. It's, um, it's very critical. And we'd like to, this is why we're here today, because we have a way to protect yourself and your family from this very thing. Before you ever go into the hospital, there's a way to prevent this from ever happening. So we'd like to show you this clip really quick of Dr. Marcoli. Really great solution. This is probably Thank one you. of the best outcomes I've seen from this business. There are a few silver linings in what's happening. We can get this to tens of these people. This needs to be seen by everyone. Everyone needs to know this. We need to empower the patient. And this tool, I've never seen anything like this that will empower the hospital patient. This is a, this is a transformational step. So great kudos and appreciations to all your hard work and effort for providing for everyone. Thank you both for doing this and doing it out of the you know, kindness of your heart and doing it without any compensation. Uh, I, I would just encourage every, everyone watching this. You've got to be irrational not to implement this immediately but what, what i would plead for you to do is to share this interview if you've got to share it with as many people as you can go to your churches your synagogue your local communities you know hundreds of people need to hear this at once if you, you recognize the potential for saving literally hundreds of thousands of millions of lives uh with this Strategies. Thank you. Uh, well, it's, 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 it's totally aligned with the mission that I've had for the second watch time is to bring this valuable type of information. This one is 100% free and literally can save your life. And that's Dr. Joseph Mercola. And, and he actually said, had um, everyone had these documents, there wouldn't have been a pandemic. Absolutely not. They couldn't have followed through with their agenda had Americans gone in hospitals with this. And, and he's right. So that's why we're here today. Spoiler alert. Question. At the end. Thank you. So um, <laughs> moving right along, I'll get to you later. Hold that question. Write it down if you can't remember. Um, this is why we're here today. There's going to be a, a handout that you guys can actually take action on today because I am not about people just being scared. I just want you prepared. So. This document can be found at ourpatientrights.com, and it says six-page uh, printout. You can, but you'll have it today. 
So we want, we want to make something really clear um, from the beginning, that you have a hospital and you have doctors. Everyone says, oh, the hospitals are forcing the doctors to do this and this and this. Unfortunately, that's a misnomer. Um, the hospital is a facility, and that facility is where the doctors work at. They use the tools, they use the technology, they use, they use the facility to treat their patients. The doctors don't work for the hospital. They work for the patient. It is a patient-doctor relationship. It's not a patient-hospital relationship. It's not a patient-fauci relationship. It's not a patient-who relationship. It's a patient-doctor relationship. So it's that doctor's responsibility to communicate with the patient informed consent and to get uh, approval and to prescribe medications, not the hospital. The hospital can say, oh, you're going to lose your privileges here, and the doctor may have to find a different line of work within medicine. The doctor may not be able to work in a hospital, but, um, but that's the extent of it. Um, as and I won't be killing anybody. Go into the hospital. Um, there is a, a, consent, a consent form that you have to sign. And this is an example, one from Texas. It actually says, independent physicians, I acknowledge that the physicians taking part in my care or providing a professional service to me do not work for the hospital and that the hospital is not responsible for their judgment or conduct. So they practice independently and are not employees or agents of the hospital. This basically says whatever that doctor does, whether he gives you remdesivir or whatever he gives you, the hospital's not responsible for it. The doctor chose to do that. Even if they pressure them with all kind of lies and scare taxes, they're responsible for it. So we, we wanted to make that clear and, and everyone understands that. Okay. Next. All right. So a lot of people have said, well, I have these documents. I have these documents filled out. I don't have to worry about it. No, you don't have these documents. Unless you've seen us and gone to our website, you don't have these documents because they are new. They are like any other out there. Um, these are called current consent documents. And most people are thinking about advanced directives. Advanced directives are when the patient cannot communicate. So that's when they kick in. And our documents kick in immediately. When you enter the hospital, they immediately kick in. Advanced directives are if you are unconscious and you can't make a decision, then really it's what your medical power of attorney would use to follow your wishes. Again, that's not what these are. These are current care documents. Okay, so this particular document, which is new, you haven't seen it before, it's not something a lawyer's gonna say here, or this will protect you, because they don't know about it. So this, this document is based on three things, three key elements. It, it has a, uh, your informed consent put in writing, of course, but the second one's pretty unique. It's based on your religious and spiritual beliefs. That's key, and we'll get into that in a minute. And it also has consequences to the doctor in black and white. That's one of my favorite parts of it, because advocating for a lot of people who are now widows, um, who didn't make, their husband didn't make it out, uh, I take it personally. Every single person who's been bullied, harassed, and had their rights completely trampled on. So we'll get into that in a minute. Oh, right. I do this so many times that I forget. 
it, all this is so important because it's no longer just a he said, she said. Let me explain that. When you go into the hospital, there's going to be times when you are really alone. There's not even a navigator or family member around you. So even if you said no remdesivir or wrote it, I just posted this on Facebook, someone wrote with a Sharpie, no remdesivir on their arm. Guess what they got? No remdesivir. So why didn't that work? It's not a legal document, and it's not a part of the patient record, and it wasn't served legally. So there's so many aspects to this, and you can't have the doctor uh, in charge of the, of the medical record uh, be the last word. You, you can't do that. I've seen, I know it happens. The doctor gets to interpret what he said happened in that room. I think they said they want remdesivir. I think they changed their mind. I think if someone was falling asleep, they mumbled when they were really counting sheep, I want the COVID bags. Okay? So this is this is key. There's this way it's there's no ambiguity, there's no uh, he said she said anymore. Oh my the next one. Oh, okay. I've done this before, I promise. <laughs> okay, so what will you see on this document? You'll see a list of things that we uh, had uh, conveniently put on the form. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to initial next to the ones you don't want. But these are the most common things that we found problematic in hospitals that patients said they did not want. And one of them is a good vaccine, but there's many others. And let me start out by saying at the very top of the form, which isn't on the slide, we talk about informed consent in black and white. We say, doctor, you must give me informed consent. You must tell me the risks, benefits, and reasonable alternatives to any drug, treatment, or intervention. So, right off the bat, the doctor's put on notice. He also sees the consequence. It's in black and white, and it works. Okay, and another important part of why this document works, and doctors know it works, um, we're going to inform you why it works, too is based on a certain group of people, which is Jehovah's Witnesses. They do not believe in receiving blood from any living creature for, for any, any purpose. They just, that is their belief. And uh, it doesn't even matter if it will save their life. Now, doctors know this. Why do doctors know this? Because they're taught this in medical school, because it's gone all the way to the Supreme Court, and they set a precedent for it where your religious beliefs have to be respected in this, this aspect of it. Wait. I'm going to play devil's advocate. You mean that group of people, there was a single person on the planet that said, I did not want something, and it was respected. They didn't get what? Yes. Before, during, and after COVID, which I was going to get to that, <laughs> they were, this right was respected. They had, had never had a uh, blood uh, transfusion forced on them because the doctors know about this. As a matter of fact, they carry a card around with them that say they are general witnesses with their emergency contacts. Um, so that way, if ever they are in a situation where people don't know they're general witnesses and if they pull it out of their wallet, they know, okay, we can't give blood to this patient. It does not matter if the doctor understands their religious belief. It doesn't matter if the doctor agrees with their religious belief. The fact is, the doctor has to respect it. It's what they believe, and they must respect it. And this document that we have includes this. It has very, very specific language that says, um, uh, 
a verbiage that says my deeply held spiritual and religious beliefs. And only one person can interpret how deeply held your religious and spiritual beliefs are, and that's you. So no one's going to be able to interpret it any other way but you and what you have in these documents. So again, consequences to the doctor. It's in black and white at the top of the, uh, the document. Uh, I added this to the document when we were devising it because, uh, let me tell you a story. I was advocating for somebody who uh, was supposed to be very close to getting out of the hospital. They were 90% oxygen, had effectively uh, negotiated as a hostage negotiator with the doctor for budesonide inhale after effective dose, they were getting better. And just overnight, took a turn at 97% oxygen and they threw him on a ventilator. And he died. So I'm talking to the widow the next day and I said, Nancy, I, I am so sorry. I said, I value that there's gonna be consequences to the doctor. I didn't know what consequences those could possibly be. There's the PREF and the CARES Act that made hospitals uh, virtually bulletproof in the doctors working in, in the hospitals because you know they're doing the best they can with COVID is essentially what that meant. That they there's no legal recourse, no litigation that could penetrate the cares and prep. So I thought, wait a second, I've got doctors in my family. I know what really upsets them. They're good doctors and they've been harassed relentlessly during COVID for doing the right thing. Let's flip the tables to borrow a, a biblical reference and let's use the board, the state medical board, for bad doctors. How's that for an awful idea? And so I put a clause on there that says that you will be reported immediately to your state medical board. That gets their attention. And uh, they'll receive a letter in the mail and then they'll have to lawyer up and they're going to have to spend some time and effort defending a decision which is intentional tort of battery if they receive this document. It's no longer malpractice or neglect, which the CARES and the PREP Act cover. This is intentional, as if I took a, a baseball bat and just walked down the hall of the hospital and just started hitting people with it. That's gonna be hard to, hard to defend, don't you think? Okay, this is also very clever, according to Dr. Mercola. This, this document is only revocable in writing. Why did we say that in the document? Because we know doctors in the last three years have been extremely sneaky and, in my estimation, evil. And we can't, like in the, uh, in the skit, we can't count on them not to do something like say, oh, I think I heard them say they changed their mind like in the case of somebody I was advocating for, who was so afraid that she would, she was so afraid that they were gonna put a COVID vaccine in her arm that she said five times no, that she called a hotline and around one o'clock in the morning, we got her out. She didn't wanna spend one more night there, okay? She didn't have this document. This prevents that. document when you become a patient in the hospital, when you're admitted to the hospital. Um, I've had a lot of people say, well, I'm just going to 
Sanitary Hospital in Texas. Uh, no, that's, that's not going to work. Um, it, it's not about getting it to a hospital. You don't have a record in a hospital until you become a patient there. And I don't care what the title of the hospital is, they're a business. And until you become a customer, they don't know who you are. Um, so only when you are admitted to a hospital do you use these. Now a lot of people are saying, uh, well, how do I go there? Like me, I, I was at 66% oxygen. How, I mean, I can't think properly, I don't know what's going on. Well, that's when you have these emergency contacts. You need at least three emergency contacts and you will enlist them to do the next step for you, which was, is how to deliver these documents. So you deliver these documents two ways. That is legal certified mail and legal courier service. Um, the reason this is because when you deliver it and it's gonna be addressed to the CEO, the hospital must sign for it and then you have a receipt. So no longer when you give these documents to your doctor and they just throw it in the trash, I never got it. Oh no, you got it. You got it because it was legally served to you and the hospital signed for it. So that's proof that they had this. And it's delivered to the CEO for a specific reason. The CEO is in charge of the hospital and he's also in charge of the medical records. And because he wants to get paid for all this billing, all this medication, it's all about the dollars. And so when he sees this, he's gonna say, okay, uh, well, the doctors are liable for this patient, not me. So he's going to put it into the medical record as soon as possible because he wants to push that liability back to the doctor. If that patient dies and he's holding the medical uh, wishes and consent, then that liability is on the hospital. He doesn't want that. So he's gonna put it to the medical records as soon as possible. And once it's in the medical records, everyone can see and if the doctor or nurses uh, refuse to follow the wishes that are in those medical records then that's intentional tort and that's a crime so that's how we're able to get into the uh, medical records next um, important thing we want to mention go a little bit more to the emergency contacts your emergency contacts are very important we need to get back to grassroots organization. We need to get back to depending on one another in our community and in our family. And that's how we're gonna beat this system is from the bottom up, not from the top down. Um, and so with these emergency contacts, just like the Jehovah Witnesses, they're very tight in the community and they take care of one another. So we can actually learn from them. Um, so you wanna have your three uh, emergency contacts lined up. You want them to be as informed as you are. And you also want them to have this information so they can be protected. So uh, it's very important to, to, for them to understand what's going on and they'll have these instructions. They'll have a copy of your document once you get it filled out and notarized and they'll be ready to go if an emergency comes about. Um, it could be just family or friends. Yeah, family, friends, whoever. Someone you trust, but someone that has a backbone that's ready to stand up and do it. Not when you call them and say, hey, I'm in the hospital. Oh, I'll get around to it. No, it's now, it's go time. You know, it's like when you're going to the hospital with having a baby, you got the backpacks, let's go. Um, so that's what you want. Um, we also have another um, uh, a tip is to journal up everything from when you get to the hospital. And if you can't do that, then um, have someone that's there with you. We encourage everyone to go to the hospital with someone. And thanks to Bob Hall, 
you shouldn't have anybody picked out, you know, that went with you. Just say, they're my religious spiritual counselor, and um, they have the right to be here. So always try to go with someone else um, and make sure that, uh, that they're journaling for you if you can't. Um, and let's see, let's move on to the next one because I think. Is that you? Yeah. Yep. 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 There was a place on, on that little form template. We've got copies somewhere. Where are they? Over here. Sign in. Okay, sign in. We've got a couple of copies there that you can grab just as a template. You can make your own, you know. You just want to make a note. Now, there's a place on there for like a password, username for your online medical record. This is so important. Please, everybody, get into your friend, family members. Electronic medical record if you're authorized. Usually that's the surrogate, which is the if, you, if it's your husband that's in the hospital, the wife should have access, or they can delineate somebody to get uh, access to that on their behalf. So we want to uh, encourage you to get in there, and we want you to um, maybe make a note on your your handout that you're going to have today, your document, your current consent document. There's lines, blank lines there that you can write in. I give permission uh, for person's name, your, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your, your advocate, to get into my electronic medical record. Put a couple of names on there. Make it easy for them to get into the electronic medical record when you're flat on your back and uh, fighting for your life, in some cases, in the hospital. Don't make it a big deal. So that's really helpful. Next is that uh, we don't think Bob Paul or Senate Bill 572. Um, if they say, okay, it's COVID, you need to get out. No, you don't need to get out. Um, uh, Senate Bill 572 says that um, relating to in-person visitations of religious counselors, it doesn't, you don't have to be a pastor, you don't have to be a preacher, you don't have to be a certain religion. If you just say, this is my religious counselor, that's all you need, and then they can be with you. Um, and you might want to add that to the space um, on your lines. Uh, if we have a different slide for other states, but in Texas you can add, I would like my religious counselor to be with me, person bill 572, a reminder to them. Okay, and there are a few other things that uh, we want to go over. What if questions? Okay, what if the doctor won't take my caregiver's consent document? I kind of went over this a little bit. Um, if they say, you know, no, I, I don't see that, I don't see that. Well, you say, that's fine, but i just like to let you know that your CEO will be receiving this letter possibly within the next hour. He hasn't received it already. And it will be in my medical records. And so I thought you might want to know it's being delivered uh, legal uh, courier service. And so it's, 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 he's being served this document. And at that point, that doctor, he has one brain cell will turn around and say, okay, I want to see what my CEO is getting concerning my patient before he sees it. So I guarantee he'll turn around and take that document. Um, the next what if question is, uh, what if going to the CEO puts a target on my back? Well, I'm here to let you know, you already have a target on your back. All of us have a target on our back. Especially if you're unvaccinated, you have a target on your back. Um, if you're uh, over 60, you have a target on your back. There's so many targets because there's so many financial incentives. And uh, we don't know what they have planned coming up here shortly, but we know that they have something planned and it's not good. So uh, don't let fear um, drive you from asserting your rights. 
everyone has a right to live. Okay, what if I just give it to my nurse, my doctor, and they say they'll put it in my chart, and we have several doctors that are just so sweet, so kind, bluebirds on my shoulder. Dr. Chapel. We will do that for you. We will put that in your medical record. And they walk out the door and throw it in the trash. Um, so, uh, no, you can't just say, uh, okay, well, the doctor said they could do it, and that's that. No, that's not that. You need to do it a specific way to make sure that it is delivered, and you need to get into your online medical records to check to see when they've actually put it in there. And you also need to check to see what drugs they're giving you. Um, you want to keep track of what's going on with your health. Um, it's no longer where we just walk in and give our health over to another person. Because let's face it, they're human beings. Every human being makes a mistake, honestly. And then there's some that are just gone beyond that and are working. Um, but we have to uh, start you know, looking at our own health and taking accountability for it. Yeah, so um, who here thinks Fauci is responsible for 1.2 to 5 million deaths? Who thinks that? I'm here to give you a huge revelation. He was, was he your doctor? Well, I wanted to tell you this. Um, he was not on the floor when I got remissary. Um, he wasn't even in the hospital. What? Yes, my doctor was Dr. Lee. And that's the That doesn't sound like Fauci. It, does, it doesn't. That's the only person that could have prescribed it for me. I Fauci's not a good guy. He's not on our Christmas card list. But um, at the same time, that doctor, that Dr. Lee, is the one that prescribed that for me after I said I don't want any type mm -hmm. of experiment. Sounds like us. maybe he's he's the one who's responsible. She. Yeah, she. Okay, <laughs> whatever. These days we know that. So <laughs> Dr. Lee was responsible for saying, I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. And totally violated Greta Crawford, my dear friends, bodily autonomy and right to cons to withdraw consent, give consent, and decline consent. Didn't care. He's going to do it anyway. You know what we call that in any other context? In a sexual way, rape. Just so everybody knows in here, I don't want to have sex with any of you. Okay. <laughs> we got that clear, and you guys will respect that, won't you? And I didn't even need a piece of paper. But in a hospital, you have to. You have to have it in writing because it's a he said, she said thing in there. You guys got to believe me. I've been doing this for three years. So it's not the who. It's not the CDC. It's not elected officials. It's not the hospital, the big bad hospital. The hospital is like, I'm not going to have your back, doctor. I'll push in front of a bus if you get in a lawsuit. They're not going to what's called indemnify. They're not going to lawyer up that doctor and protect him. That's why they're going to shuffle off the responsibility to the doctor by putting that rec that uh, document into the electronic medical record really quick. It's like, oh, that's your that's your hot potato, not mine. So why do we why are we harping on it's the doctor? Because you guys have more power than you think. You actually can get that guy to stop something. You'll never have a conversation with Dr. Fauci, as evil as the media has made him out to be, and he is, and he is, but have you had a conversation with him? Can you change anything about your care in the hospital by talking to him? No, because that doctor is your patient-doctor relationship, and he has a license to kill 
and he equally now has a license to lose. Okay, um, so what we're going to show you right now is a four-minute explainer. I encourage all of you go watch it so that you uh, don't call me <laughs> and say, how do I do this? Um, we did the, uh, Rhonda was so kind to put together a four-minute explainer to show you exactly how you would walk through the process after leaving today, prepare, and then eventually there's an accident. Nobody prepares for that. Now you're in the ER.
uh, room today except one tech. Doctor never even came to the room today. Bed for an RT, a respiratory therapist, for three hours. Mind you, this is a lung floor in CAPS. Next message. When EMS arrived, we refused to leave until their RT came to give his treatment first. Last message. No one happy that a patient got better well enough to go home. Insane. Do you think you might need this document? This person didn't have the document. It was fighting tooth and nail to get them out. Uh, okay, sorry. Yeah, uh, good question. Do you have any retroactive uh, things available for relatives that lost a patient in the hospital? And, and we saw it coming. During, during COVID, there is no legal recourse. I beg everybody to do this because everybody wants justice after. I don't want anybody to die. Look, I'm empathetic to every death. My mom died in the hospital when I was in my 20s. And uh, we married her shortly after she died on Mother's Day. So I'm very empathetic. I have a soul, even if I am a comedian. And I just beg everybody to be prepared before they even go in because there is no litigation course. There's no right. recourse. No. no. The, the PREP and the CARES Act covers malpractice and neglect. But with um, our document, but, there would be. Well, but neglect um, is like, uh, you know, I forgot. Well, they're saying they're so busy with this new, new COVID that we're going to forget them. Um, malpractices, I made a mistake. Well, they're so busy and overwhelmed with this new COVID, we're going to forgive them. Um, but with this document, it's intentional. So, you, but before, no. But if you have this document now and something happens, yes, you have recourse. What, what, what did Dr. Mercola say? Um, uh, it, this could have circumvented the whole. Yeah, but it would be a seven or eight figure yes. judgment for intentional tort, a and, battery. Yeah, and based criminal charges. Changes the game, guys. Changes the game. Hope everybody does it. Okay. Uh, this gentleman in the blue shirt, uh, behind He's the green shirt. You started out by talking about an individual hospital. But this area of Central Texas has some great hospitals yeah. and some great doctors in it, and you did not identify which bad hospital you were talking about. Oh, they're so all over the place, sir. Concerned, you weren't, didn't do your job. You didn't tell us what hospital was bad. You're fired! Yeah, take it out of my salary. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, hey, sir, I do have, I mean, I'm going to be trying to be as polite, but I, you know, the rule is if you're the comedian, you have the mic, the mic wins. But I'm going to be nice. Um, well, you should have started out as saying you were a I, comedian. Uh, <laughs> my, my family is full of doctors, and they're great people, and they're doing the right thing. Just do the right thing. Just don't, you know, kill somebody. As simple as that. Don't. Trample on somebody's right to say no. Respect the no. Exactly, sir. Do no harm. And yeah, there's, there's good doctors. I know them. They're my family. But I think he was talking about hospitals. Yeah, there's a lot and of again, hospitals. Hospitals, doctors, those are separate. <laughs> okay, and man, Richard. He's not as funny as he should be. Every day. We, we, it took us three days to find him. We had to use the political capital to get a hold of him. 
And so we did. Yes. And we finally got him home, and he died three days later of yeah. malnutrition. And we're, I was allowed, I drove six hours every day for three weeks down there. This you know what's up, yeah. And they took the food way on the other side. Yes. He could uh-huh. cook, he had no care. Then I got it, and I had a, a four hours to get to the hospital in Houston. Oh, we should ask him what the good hospital is. And I had the, I called, I had the, one of the top doctors at the main hospital yeah. in uh, Houston. And I told him I wouldn't go to the hospital. They were going to put me on Prodestria or put me on Midland. He said, we won't do it. I had six doctors waiting for me at the emergency room. Yeah, police, yeah. we life. should tell so a success story about the place people. Wow. Yeah. I'm sorry, they and do that all the time. And I had to force it off and get it off in my left. The next day I was having a bad patient. And uh, anyway, I still had COVID, but they let me out. Yeah. I'm right. glad you're alive. And you you started this problem with Sandra Locke. Yeah. 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 But I made them quote every time they gave me a shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if anybody's got any questions, so we want to. We have a notary here, so if you have these documents filled out, you can go ahead and get a notarized now. Go and make uh, copies after you get them notarized, and uh, you'll be prepared for this point on. Um, oh, did you have a question? <laughs> Oh, and there, there's pins up here and documents, and extra documents if anybody needs them. I'd like to know where the good hospital is. And thank you all so much for listening to us, too, and presenting. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much for the great information. Again, we have copies of those the documents up here. We have a notary available for your signature, so if you want to take care of this today, come on up front. Otherwise, well, attention, attention, attention. I actually have one other uh, topic that I was going to let William Burnson speak on. Uh, He has been following the the budget workshops, the county budget workshops, and he can give you kind of a, a quick 10-minute uh, overview. So please give your attention to Mr. Burnson, and then after this, we'll wrap it up. Thank you very much. Um, I know there's a lot of people leaving, and I'll do my best to keep it short, but I, I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about the budget and I have a lot of bullet points I'd like to go over, but clearly I don't have enough time. So I'm going to hit the points that are most interesting to me. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is this piece of paper that I've had floating around the room. This one in particular has two sides. One side is very colorful, and the other side is white. And I wanted to point out this is the budget study. So there were some questions. Early on in the process, we were trying to determine how much of a raise we were going to get county employees, and it was agreed pretty early on that everybody was going to get 5%, except that the EMS and the Sheriff's Department were asking for a little bit more because of various reasons that issue staffing, and so they were asking for 7%. We went to that very first meeting where they were discussing the Sheriff's and EMS hours. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I can't concentrate on talking Excuse me, would y'all please 
not over talk, William. Oh, sorry. Thank you. I'm sorry about that. So in the very first meeting, we the first time we came up to just uh, discuss the higher salaries for the sheriff and the MS department, um, they gave their, their comments and they both the director and the sheriff spoke for about three or four minutes. And not very long they presented their cases and, and the judge kind of looked around the room for a minute and said, Okay, well I don't think these people are all super fat, so I think we should just give them all ten percent. So even more than they were requesting. And about 10, 15 minutes later, with little to no discussion, the meeting was adjourned. And we never really got a chance to discuss that. And we spent the rest of the budget process, um, uh, process discussing the salaries for those two departments. And unbeknownst to us, I think they eventually backed off to 10% for the sheriff's department and put it back down to 7 And I believe BMS wound up getting 9% overall on average. And, but that discussion caused me to do some research I wanted to know. And so this document here, this is a budget analysis. It compares Fayette County to surrounding counties. And the very first thing, and I just got to go through this. Uh, I don't really have a process. I want you to understand what you're looking at. Take these home and study them. But if you look at this first column here, and I had started with the beginning balance of all funds. It's the second column. Um, and then that third column is the number of months. And then the next column is the beginning balance general fund, the number of months again. So if you look at Fayette County, in the beginning balance, according to this is the 2023 budget, not 24, but 2023. It's the only year I could get for all counties. And you will see the beginning balance is $5 million, which is 2.1 months worth of expenses. Okay, and that's in all funds. So if you're not aware, County's budget, there's a general fund, there's four road and bridge funds. We have a contingency fund, get uh, the, the medical fund, uh, but there are several funds, and the most important ones are the general and the road and bridge. So this first column here describes all the funds, and when you compare budget numbers, it's very hard to compare apples to apples, especially when you go from year to year, every county to county, so I have to be very careful about the numbers up there. When you look at the next column, the general fund, so the beginning, the projected beginning balance for the general fund for Fayette County was only a million dollars last year. And that is 0.4 months of its expenses. So if the county has $28,000 in appropriations, $1 million uh, equates to 0.4 months worth of expenses. I'm not sure if I make that, if that's clear, but generally you want to reserve fund three months worth of expenses. And the million dollars in the general fund is equivalent to about half a month of expenses. And so I brought that to the court, and they didn't like, like what I had to say about that. Look at these other counties. Um, I'm just going to compare the general funds. Colorado County has 3.4 months in their general fund. Lavaca, 2.9 months. Gonzalez County is a rich county. That's 5.3 months they have in their general fund. And on average, they all have 3.3 months. If you look at all the funds combined, the total on average is 6.2 months worth of expenses in all their combined funds. But here again, here's Fayette County at two. So our overall fund balances are very low. Now the libertarian in me says, well, that's great because that's a savings account. That's my tax money, and I don't want the government to have a savings account. The liberal in me says, well, that's because we spend it all. And the conservative in me says, well, we need to build that fund balance up so that when there's an emergency, 
we can cover our expenses. Because the only thing I can think of worse than paying a lot more uh, than our government expenses growing massively in one year is for those expenses to grow. And then they run out of funds and stop providing services at the end of the year. So this current budget year is projected to have a $150,000 general balance fund at the end. $150,000 ending balance on the general fund. This next year, 2024 budget. Now, to be fair, there's going to be some funds coming from the, I can't remember the name of the fund. There's no 800000 So it won't wind up that low, but these numbers are still very low. And so that's what this is. And I'm going to turn the paper over. I'm not going to talk about it, but I want you to understand what it is. In order to understand whether or not a million dollar deficit's a big deal, I looked at the history of deficits. So this is all the budgets going back to 2010. And I can talk a long time about this, but we're going to run out of time. So I wanted to spend a few minutes speaking specifically about the part of the budget that I thought was the biggest increase and the most important part of the budget to scrutinize, and that is the sheriff's office budget. And so again, all county employees this year get 5%. Sheriff's office requested 7 but there's something else about the sheriff's salaries that everybody needs to be aware of. So, regular work week is 40 hours for most people, so you get overtime at 40 hours. That is not the case for the sheriff's office. Their overtime is, they don't get overtime, they get comp. So if they get extra hours in a week, that goes in a bank, and they get that time that's saved up, and they, it's like vacation days or whatever, and they save them up, and eventually when they leave, they're gonna get paid that time in one lump sum, it's actually fairly large. So the sheriff's budget, you know, they, they get paid every two weeks, so 80 hours is a typical pay period. Well, that's not the case for EMS and sheriff's department. They have different, they have different set of, uh, salary standards. So that, their work week is not 40 hours, it's 43. So they have been budgeting for 80 hours per pay period for the sheriff's department. And they realized this year that they're supposed to be budgeting for 86 hours. So the first thing they did was increase everybody's salaries by those six hours. Now that's per pay period, so that's 12 hours a month. That's a 7.5% increase on salary. To go from 80 hours to 86 hours, that's a 7.5% increase. So to be fair, that's six hours that they would have gotten in comp time, but now they're getting in salary. Excuse me? They are. They're getting the seven and a half and seven percent on top of that. So there's fifteen percent pretty quick. So the same budget a couple meetings ago, the one that started all the controversy was the one where I probably couldn't hold my tongue anymore and had to speak about what I saw in this budget. That meeting, the week before the sheriff's salary was proposed eighty thousand dollars. And in this meeting it was ninety-five thousand. And in addition, that happened over a week behind closed doors. There was no public discussion. And in addition, the sheriff's budget went from 4.1 million to 5.1 million. So that's nearly a 25% increase in the sheriff office uh, department-wide budget in one year. One year, and it's the final budget. You know, they, they removed some expenses from that budget. And in the final budget, Sheriff's Department, the budget is $4.8 million. They removed some cars. Um, I think it's very important, I've been warned, that we need to check 
the comp balances for the deputies of the Sheriff's Department. I've been warned that it's possible there could be a half a million dollars in comp time accrued, which is overtime for the Sheriff's Department. And if there's ever a mass exodus, deputies, those comp time hours have to be paid, and it's a huge liability. I haven't seen it on any set of books anywhere. But it's something I'd like to know about. If there's that big a liability in overtime, I'd like to know about it. So I just wanted to point out to you how was generally supportive of increases for the Sheriff's Department and for the EMS, but I really felt like this budget, with a 9% increase in spending, 9% increase in spending, I know, uh, is the biggest increase in spending in the last since like 2010. And so the big the thing we got out of it this year, everybody got what they asked for. Everybody got what they asked for, and almost everything they asked for is a very liberal budget. And I say, if you want to influence the budget, you gotta get in on the process early. If you wait for the public hearings at the end, it's too late. You gotta be there in June and July. You can see here all audio recordings from all commissioners' court meetings and see my reports at kingwilliam.com. That's K-I-N-G-W-M.com. I report all commissioners' court meetings and put the audio there and do a report. Thank you for your time.
sending out emails with that information, but if you want to read the paper, it's explained in there. So, any other comments or questions? Uh, James Gilliam did ask me if he could just make a quick statement about the Texas Nationalist Movement. Make it quick, James. <laughs> I prepared this. But I don't. I don't think I need the mic. I think I talk like everybody. Hear me, okay? No. <laughs> My name is James Gillum. I've been a resident of this county for 17 years now. I'm also been in the Texas Nationalist Movement for 11. I've been the district director for two. Shortly after I lost my wife, or before I lost my wife, I became the district director. Texas Constitution, Article One, Section Two. All political power is inherent in the people, and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit. How do people ensure their political power? Two ways. You go to the ballot box or through the Texas Republican State Convention. This last year there were two platforms passed at the convention that TNM had a big hand in. One had to do with state sovereignty, Plank 33. Pursuant to Article 1, Section 1 of the Texas Constitution, the federal government has impaired our right of local self-government. We try to do something, they step over us. Therefore, federally mandated legislation that infringes upon the Tenth Amendment rights of Texas shall be ignored, opposed, refused, and nullified. Texas retains the right to secede from the United States. And the Texas legislature should be called upon to pass a referendum consistent thereto. This was in June of 22, calling for the legislature to pass a referendum to give us a vote on it. Never got passed. Right now we're doing a petition drive. If the legislature doesn't put it on the ballot, if the SREC does not put it on the ballot, there's a third way to get it there. Petition drive. The Texas Nationalist Movement is heading a petition to give each and every one in this room a vote on if Texas should stay in the union the way it is now, or we should go on our own. Let me ask you this question. If Texas was an independent country right now, doing great, as we know we can, if the question was on the ballot, would you join the union? If you wouldn't join the union, you would vote to leave. We're doing a petition drive. My friend Phil and I, Phil is a local coordinator in Waller, are here to help anybody that wants to sign our petition. And I have to legally read this statement from the state to you. It gets a little confusing, but I will explain it. I know that the purpose of this petition is to place a referendum on the 2024 general primary ballot for the Republican Party that states, the state of Texas should reassert its status as an independent nation, for or against. I know we're all Republicans in this room. This second part really does not apply to any Republican that votes in the primary, but I must legally read it. I understand by signing this petition, I become ineligible to vote in the primary election or participate in a convention of another party 
including a party not holding a primary election during the voting year in which this primary election is held. In other words, if you sign the petition, you're promising to vote in the Republican primary only, attend that convention only if possible. You're not going to change sides. Deborah, thank you for your time. I thank appreciate you, it. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else have anything to say? Good. <laughs>